Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA. Hey, I'm Alex from Rochester, New York. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm Mike Peskin for Jesse Thorne this week. Johnny Carson spent 30 years as host of The Tonight Show. He came off as a genial Midwestern guy. Off screen, though, he could be very different. Carson at home wasn't the guy you saw on television. And that's what I think makes him so interesting. And that's what I think makes his brilliance all the more important because you realize that this was a great performance he was putting on every night because this really wasn't who he was. It's Bullseye. Who was Johnny Carson? Coming up, I'll talk to Henry Bushkin. He was Carson's longtime lawyer and right-hand man. Carson even once called him his best friend. Johnny didn't make friends easily. His whole being was centered on making that 60-minute time that he was on camera, that that red light was on as good as it could be. So he had little interest in other things. We'll talk about how the biggest entertainer of his generation so often hurt the people around him, whether he meant to or not. Then later, we'll revisit Jesse Thorne's conversation with a woman who was part of an entirely different television phenomenon, Friends. Lisa Kudrow will talk about playing the dumb one on Friends, but also her real-life career in brain science. When I was in high school and first took sort of a real biology class, I mean, I was hooked. I was really hooked. I thought it was the most fascinating thing. Plus, Jim DeRogatis talks about how the art punk band Wire proved that you don't need mega talent, just some really good ideas. Lastly, I'll talk about why I'm cheering Keith Oberman's return to sports. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Mike Peskin for Jesse Thorne this week. What new can be said about Johnny Carson? He's the iconic television host, the genial Midwestern everyman who spent decades on millions of television screens across America. And on each of those nights, he started off with a monologue. I don't say this so you feel uh, like I'm bragging. I don't worry about money anymore because I have a fantastic business advisor, shrewd man, bombastic Bushkin. (laughs) He's got me into some shrewd business deals. I have an all-night liquor store in a Mormon temple. I own a Fredericks of Hollywood in Iran. I'm not into gold or precious metals. Bushkin told me to buy flint. The bombastic Bushkin is a real guy, Henry Bushkin, and he does have some new things to say about Johnny Carson. He knew Johnny better than pretty much anyone else. As Bushkin tells it, Johnny spent almost all of his charm in front of the camera each night. He had very little left over for the people in his life. Carson first met Bushkin when he was a newly minted lawyer looking for clients. After a brief, awkward job interview, Bushkin found himself joining Carson on a heist. Carson broke into, okay, as his lawyer, he would argue it wasn't exactly breaking in, but he gained entry to his soon-to-be ex-wife's apartment. He was looking for evidence of an affair, and Carson found it. And Bushkin found himself watching America's biggest celebrity cry. After that, Bushkin was invited into Johnny's off-screen world. It was equal parts professional and personal. He spent 18 years as Carson's lawyer and his closest confidant. Henry Bushkin, thank you for joining me on Bullseye. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you, Mike. So how long had you known Johnny Carson before you found yourself breaking into a New York City apartment as a member of a four-person squad, an armed Johnny Carson among them? I had known him for 10 minutes prior to that. <laughs> How's that? 10 minutes. What was the initial meeting like? Stilted and awkward. It lasted 10 minutes. The only thing we had in common, perhaps, was that uh, he liked tennis and I happened to play tennis. And so we had that in common. To this day, do you know why he called for you? No, he didn't call for me. A friend, a mutual friend, suggested he meet me. Now, why did he want to meet someone like me? Because he was in a sort of a crisis in his life. His marriage was on the rocks. His personal affairs were in in very bad shape. Uh, he had a manager who was paying no attention to him, and his and his show, which was seven years then on the air, was in some trouble with producers and producer problems. 
and and he had no one to rely on. So he found this young kid who he thought maybe he could trust, and it turned out he could. And the relationship lasted for almost two decades. Do you think he was testing you? No. No, I don't think he was testing me at all. I think he was in need of a lawyer in case the cops came and arrested him or try to arrest him. And I was that lawyer. It was as simple as that. Fortunately, no cops came. And this year is 1970. The Tonight Show's in New York. Johnny Carson, you both living in New York. And before you even met Johnny Carson uh, and before you went on this uh, caper with him, do you have a first memory of seeing Johnny Carson or a strong impression of uh, what Johnny Carson meant to you when he was just a TV figure? There, were, there, there was a Life magazine article that you may be interested in looking at that was in early 1970. And it was really a revealing article. This is before I met him. And he described himself as one of the – or the author described him – described Johnny as one of the loneliest people in the world. Yeah. That's how she described him before I met him. Yeah. Sonny Werblin described him as the second unhappiest man he's ever met, Jack Benny being the first. Now, this is like an introduction that I'm getting to him be, before I know him for a week. So meeting Johnny Carson in his office, an odd meeting, then going on this caper, and you detail another pretty early meeting in a, in a bar where, you know, it was a little bit tense. Was there a time that you could put your finger on where you said to yourself, you know, I really think I've gotten to know Johnny Carson now? What was that time? I think it was that bar scene. Yeah. Uh, when I went down, it was around 3 in the morning, and he and Ed McBann and the bartender were there. Ed left, the bartender sauntered off to the side, and there was the two of us, and, and, and he's literally telling me about his upbringing in Nebraska and what his mother was like, what his father was like, what his life was like, and how much he valued the, the, Nebraska, how much he valued the Midwestern ethic, how, how these people are sort of courageous to put up with all the things they have to put up with in Nebraska. In those days, he was from a very, very small little town in Iowa and then grew up at a very, very small town in Nebraska. And, and this was really, these were hardworking people. And and he loved he loved the people in Nebraska, and this this came out early on. Well, that second or third day of our relationship, and I think that was the most intimate he ever got with me about sharing feelings. Give us a sketch of the state of his business affairs, because you write about how his neighbor Sonny Werblin, who is a famous entertainment figure who was the part owner of the New York Jets, was managing much of Carson's affairs and uh, not doing too well. He was his manager, yeah, and he was the president of the New York Jets. He was the guy who brought Joe Namath to the New York Jets. And so he was a very well-known figure, but unfortunately, he was uh, taking some advantage of Johnny at the time. But he was, the, he was a neighbor. He lived literally on the same floor at UN Plaza. And when you delved into the contracts that Johnny had signed and how much he was getting paid, what did you find? that he uh, had virtually no assets, virtually no cash, uh, was making, at that time, I think about 15000 a week. But before that, he was making 3000 a week. But his salary, if you looked at it on paper, would be $5 million a year. But he was taking home 150000 Those were the days when taxes and New York taxes took away 90% of your income. So if you're making five million, just imagine you'd be taking home five hundred thousand in those days. So Johnny was making on paper a lot of money, but he had very, very little cash. The complication was even though Johnny Carson was getting all this deferred compensation, his William Morris, who represented him, was demanding their full cut up front, meaning he'd have to pay William Morris a lot more than he was even putting in his pocket. I mean, how could that situation have been allowed to exist? That's agents for you. J- Johnny was technically making 100000 a week, and they were charging him 10%. So they were billing him 10000 a week, and he was taking home 1500 a week, or 3000 a week, I'm sorry. I mean, how absurd is that? Right. And, and that's why he despised William Morris for his entire career. Father's Day, 
You're, yes, sir. You're a pappy, aren't you? Yes, sir. This Sunday, right? But it brings back um, kind of childhood memories to me, doesn't it to you? Oh, yes. Growing up as a child, I remember times my dad, for example, would take me out to the woodshed, paddle my bottom, and then... And at times he'd send me to bed without my supper, and I remember the times he'd make me get up at like five in the morning to milk the cow. And that's why you're not getting anything this year, Dad. <laughs> I never forget. <laughs> I keep a file on these things. Ed, of course, uh, every year at this time gets a beautiful Father's Day card from Korea. Uh, <laughs> It's Bullseye. I'm Mike Peskin for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Henry Bushkin. He's written a book about the talk show host Johnny Carson. Bushkin was Carson's lawyer, fixer, and confidant. The book is called Johnny Carson. You, you earned uh, his trust over time. How much of that was earning his trust on a personal level as opposed to just getting his finances in order? Oh, I think they were absolutely entwined. If you think of superstars today... They're they're all very finicky people, male or female. They're just finicky, and if you think of uh, rock and rollers, and and the groupies and the entourages that go along with rock and rollers, and then you think back of Carson, who in his day was the certainly the biggest television star in the country, and and maybe the most important entertainment figure in the country, because after all, his show is that important, and his entourage was one. It was me. So we were together a lot. And if you go along because of business and you're spending a week on the road, you know, it's just more than business. You're hanging out together. And that's what that's what happened over the first five or six years. And that's what developed into what was quite a friendship uh, between us. It must have been challenging. You were up to the challenge from a, a legal standpoint to get the finances straight, the contracts straight. But then there are the personal favors. And as I'm reading the book, you're a father, I'm a father. He was a father, but I think he probably defined it a little bit differently than uh, than we do. Um, his son, Ricky, who led a tragic life, was, uh, was in the Navy probably, you surmise, to impress his father, Johnny Carson, who was also in the Navy. But it didn't work out for Ricky in the Navy. And Ricky was for a time committed to Bellevue. And it came upon your shoulders to go and visit Ricky and tell him that his father wouldn't be coming to visit him. Um, did you resent having to do that? What were your emotions involved in that task? Bewilderment. Look, this is the first six or eight months that I'm on the job, and I'm asked to go and visit his son in Bellevue, and not exactly for the reasons you've stated. He was more concerned about going to the hospital and drawing attention to the fact that his kid was there. If he showed up at Bellevue in those days, I assure you, it would have been all over every paper in New York City. There's just no question about it. That's how recognizable he was. So he sent me because his son was in a lockdown ward at at Bellevue. The Navy had a lockdown ward there for psychiatric cases. And that's why he was there. He was stationed in Nome, Alaska, and uh, I, I think was pretty bored because Nome, Alaska in those days was sort of the outer reaches of the universe. I mean, no one went to Nome, Alaska except if you were in the Navy or the military. And so the kid uh, attempted some form of suicide and was sent to New York and I went to visit and, in effect, went to deal with the Navy and to get him discharged from the Navy. That was successful. The kid got out of the hospital and then moved right in with his dad at UN Plaza. So it wasn't that he was a bad dad. I think he was a concerned dad at that time. Right. And he would often express to you concerns about his children, but like you said— he often had those concerns but didn't seem to have many actions that uh, paired with those concerns. You you would have to understand that his actions were really a reaction to how he was brought up by his mother. Yeah. So he he had a difficult mother who who really disabled him in, in certain emotional respects and he was never able to give those emotional sort of uh, – things that kids need to his kids. He was just unable to do that. Didn't mean he didn't love them. 
It just means he would be considered not a great dad, but then again, he was a superstar and and hard to... Any kid of a superstar is going to have a problem, I assure you. And and these kids uh, didn't necessarily have problems, but they were not close to their dad. And then when you analyze uh, Johnny Carson's relationship with his wives, although he loved to get married, he was the first to acknowledge he wasn't very good at it. Again, I think that boils down to his mother because his mother was unable to give him things. He was unable to pass those things on to the women in his life. I think he resented women basically because of his mother. And I think his mother basically resented men because of her father. So if you just take that backwards or forwards, uh, this, you know, the, these these problems pass on from from parent to child. They really do. And his mother suffered and he suffered. Did he have many warm relations with male friends? Sure. I mean, he had lots of lots of good friends. But, you know, when you have a good friendship, it doesn't have to necessarily be an emotional friendship. You could have a good friendship with buddies who you play tennis with, who you hang out with, who you play cards with, who you travel with. But I could assure you he wasn't sharing any personal problems with them. And he had pretty strict rules, unarticulated, but noticed by you, about how one needed to act around Johnny Carson. And one of those was you could never really ask anything from Johnny Carson. All the, all the relationships had to be on his terms, right? Well, he, I would put it this way. He was the most generous guy in the world if you didn't ask him for anything. Once you asked him for something, that became a problem. So in terms of generosity, he was a very charitable guy. He was a very generous guy. He was a very big tipper. Restaurants used to love seeing him come in. Right. And you tell a story in a book. There was a restaurateur who he went to over and over again. And this guy usually picked up the bill. And when this guy ran into tax trouble, Johnny Carson wrote him a check for $100,000. The grand gesture was not unknown to Johnny Carson. And, and I found out last week that when this same restaurateur opened another restaurant, that Carson sent him money for that as well. You know, he used to tell you, and you put in the book, a lot of what comedians call street jokes, which are, you know, the jokes that uh, your uncle will tell you at Thanksgiving or jo- pre-scripted jokes, not the kind of jokes that stand-up comedians tell today, not the kind of jokes that were in his monologue, the jokes that you would pass around from party to party. He was he was into those, huh? Oh, big time. Look, when he played Vegas, which was quite frequent in the 70s, at 2 or 3 in the morning, when you're sitting around the casino lounge at Caesars Palace, and there are four or five comedians sitting around, Rodney Dangerfield, okay, a guy by the name of Lou Alexander, Johnny, uh, his, his road manager, Stan Irwin, who was a former stand-up comedian. Uh, you get lines thrown those evenings at 3 in the morning that are just hilariously funny. And and if Johnny wanted to, he'd take over and could be the funniest. But he'd also be a great audience. He loved hearing great jokes. So those those were great fun times. Okay. Oh, interesting thing in the paper. I talked about this last night. They were trying to set a beer limit at baseball games. They think too many people are drinking too much beer. There is now a two-beer limit at Dodger Stadium. Well... Ed went to the game the other night, had a two St. Bernard kegs around his neck. After a break, Henry Bushkin will talk about the end of his relationship with Johnny Carson. I'm Mike Pesca, and this is Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Max FunCon is the ultimate weekend getaway. Come to the mountains of Southern California, hang out with brilliant creative people, laugh at amazing comedy shows, make friends for the rest of your life. Tickets are on sale now. Go to maxfuncon.com while we've still got room. It's Bullseye. I'm Mike Paskin for Jesse Thorne. My guest is Henry Bushkin. He was Johnny Carson's right-hand man for almost two decades. We're talking about the complex personality of his former boss and friend. You found out through a public and odd way that you were Johnny Carson's best friend. It was a New Yorker article, right? 
it was a Kenneth Tynan article in The New Yorker. He had spent about six weeks every day with Carson to be with him, to understand the guy. And and Tynan was a well-known British critic, and he wrote this for New Yorker. And yeah, I, re- I read the article, obviously, before it was published, and I was surprised to hear that. But then again, I wasn't surprised because I knew he didn't have really any close friends. But you can't, when you hear something like that, a, a human, such as the human condition, that they can't help but take assessment of themselves and say, well, Johnny Carson's nowhere near my list of best friends or is not even someone I would consider a friend or I didn't realize Johnny meant that much. I meant that much to him. So what was your reaction when you read that? My mother called me and said, God bless you, son. <laughs> You're his best. No, my mother was thrilled to read that. Lots of people were thrilled to read that. I mean, was it kind of a sad statement? If you're his best friend, you know what your relationship was like. He was he paid you. Um, well, and he also well, he also tasked you with things you didn't want to do and that you couldn't say no to. Well, if we work backwards, he died all alone. And nobody, I mean, there were many, many obituaries. There were many, you know, people, every comedian in the world was speaking out about how great he was. But there was no memorial. There was no nothing for him. So if you think, like many do, that he was just had this natural Midwestern charm and wit, they were wrong because what they saw on television was a performance. That wasn't who he was. And that's what I think makes his brilliance all the more important because you realize that this was a great performance he was putting on every night because this really wasn't who he was. Right. Do you think the brilliance – I mean there are a couple theories about this, why people who are enormously talented are often cruel or uncaring or maybe even horrible people in their personal lives. One theory is that if you're enormously talented, you get great wealth and people defer to you and you begin to think the rules don't apply to you and maybe they don't. Another theory is that the talent and the demons are somehow intertwined, that the thing that drives you to succeed also is your undoing personally. What do you think was the case? And all these things could be true. What do you think was the case with Carson? Yeah. I could answer it thusly, and I hope uh, I hope I can get away with this because I'm sure I can under the circumstances. There's, there's a book out by uh, Aaron James, and it's called Holes, A Theory. Okay? Yeah. Now, certain people think they're entitled. You know, they're entitled to anything they want, and they could do anything they want. And they don't think they're doing anything wrong. They think they're absolutely entitled. Carson wasn't an asshole. Okay, he he knew when he was doing something wrong, or or he was doing something that was hurting somebody. But it was almost like he couldn't help himself. It wasn't deliberate. You know, I could name many who do things that are absolutely deliberate. That was Carson's psyche, and and he wasn't mean and he wasn't mean-spirited, but he had a personality that that I think is important for people to understand, to see how complex he was, which I think adds to his brilliance. He had this ability to get people, um, not only would you marvel uh, if you thought a lot about it at his savoir faire, but you identified with him. You know, you saw the stars through his eyes and he was this normal guy who would introduce you to Jimmy Stewart. And all of a sudden you'd be sitting on a couch with Cary Grant or whoever. He had this amazing everyman quality in his professional show that as your book details, It's so amazing that, you know, he often just didn't get it or, as you say, got it but didn't care about uh, human interactions on the personal level. Well, his whole being was centered on making that 60-minute time that he was on camera, that that red light was on as good as it could be. So he had little interest in other things. So if he was spending all morning at home reading newspapers or playing tennis or doing whatever, I assure you his thoughts were what was going to go on that night on the show. Okay? So so the guy off the show was a completely different character than you got on the show. Now, if he was off the show and at a party and wanted to be the wittiest guy in the room or the most entertaining of all the entertainers in the room, or certainly he would be the most powerful guy in the room, I mean, that was that's who he could be. Or he could be off in the corner, surrounded by a few friends, not wanting to bother with anyone else at the party. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Mike Peskin for Jesse Thorne. My guest is Henry Bushkin. He was Johnny Carson's lawyer and a man Carson once described to the press as his best friend. Bushkin also had a stake in Carson's television production company. I don't seem really on it. I had, I had a bad day today. Started off wrong. <laughs> Ma, you know, I hired this new investment firm about six months ago. Yeah. Dewey Cheatham and how? Yeah. <laughs> They put all my money into a chain of sperm banks in Rome. <laughs> you read biographies or even get to know some f- famous people, and they'll say something like, although I seem so confident inside, I was dying. I was, I never really, the, what drove me was I never believed in myself. That's not true with Johnny Carson. There doesn't seem much about him that's neurotic. There doesn't seem much about him that questioned his ability. That is not at all what was driving Johnny Carson. Not a bit. And and he was he was very comfortable in his own skin. He he had no issue with with taking battle with NBC and taking control of the Tonight Show, taking ownership of the Tonight Show. No, no issue at all. One, one I, I think I could say this: he had pretty much a set of brass when it came to dealing with the network or dealing with individuals, for that matter. When it came to confrontation. Uh, there's there's a bit I wrote in the book about uh, an extortion attempt on his life where where he actually drove the car and made the drop. This was a big deal back then. But he, he drove the car himself. He didn't let a stand-in drive the car. Yeah. And you quote some law enforcement is just marveling at how brave he was. Well, there you go. I yeah. mean, you know, this is a, this is a complex guy. He was He was a... Very good astronomer. Carl Sagan, who you may or may not know of, was a brilliant astronomer uh, and a friend of Carson's. And Carson had his own observatory in, in at his home. I mean, how interesting is that? Perhaps you can define some terms. Yes. Now, how do we get the term UFO? Actually, during World War II, the fighter pilots saw this immense ball of fire right in his path and the pilot yelled you F-O when you became not only so close to him and his manager important part of his life his traveling buddy um, when you became part of the monologue when he would refer to you as a recurring character the bombastic Bushkin did you feel that you'd arrived at another level or was it just another thing for your mom to be proud of well, no, it was certainly a thing for my mother to be proud of. I mean, that was more important than anything else. I think if Johnny's mother ever said to him that she was really proud of him, I think that would have gone a long way, to tell you the truth. But she never did. My mother ate it up. She loved all this stuff. She would tell everyone who her son was. When it ended between you and Johnny, it did not end well. Um before it ended, did you always figure the day would come, or how did you uh, conceive of how your relationship with Johnny Carson would one day end? There was no question it was going to end, because the the business that we had started in 1980, by 1987, uh, we had 100 people working for us, and we were producing, I don't know, three or four different television shows. And we were probably grossing close to $200 million a year. And that became the problem because the more success we were having, the less enjoyment he was getting out of it because it was taking more time away from his Tonight Show effort. And he felt it was taking too much of my time away from paying attention to him. So when that became quite evident, the relationship was going to end, and it and it did. And and after I left, all those businesses were shut down. So at the end of the day, he shut everything down, and he still he still died worth five hundred million dollars. So that lets you know how much money he was making, and and the value of the assets that he had, which were mainly the Tonight Show. By the end. Was there anyone that Johnny Carson had, you know, a close, sustained relationship with in his life that didn't end in bitterness? Was Fred, would Fred DeCordova's longtime producer be in that category? Was there anyone? No, Fred DeCordova would not be in that category. And I left 1988, 1989, and he died in 2005. So in those 16 years or so, uh, 
I can't tell you what relationships he had. I don't think he had any close relationships. After all, I read that Ed McMahon said they spoke at least once or twice a year. Now, imagine this is a guy he worked with for 30 years. They spoke at least. And if Ed said at least once or twice, I imagine it was like once or twice every third year. Look, it's such a part of your life. You can't define who Henry Bushkin was without who Johnny Carson was. But overall, in your assessment, were you, I mean, were you pleased? Were you happy? Were you what to have uh, spent so much time with Johnny Carson? It's it was a part. It, it's it's another lifetime ago. So it's it's part of my life. I w- I'm not going to do it over again. It's it's something I'll I'll treasure, uh, but it's not part of my life today. All right, Henry Bushkin. The name of the book is Johnny Carson. Not one of those books with a bunch of superfluous subtitles. It's just Johnny Carson, and it really was just Johnny Carson. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Mike. It's Bullseye. I'm Mike Pesca in for Jesse Thorne. So there's always a glut of films right at the end of the year competing for attention and Oscar nominations. This year is no different. So we've asked two of the critics at the film site The Dissolve to share their thoughts on movies you shouldn't miss in the year-end blitz. Joining me are editorial director Keith Phipps and editor Scott Tobias. Thanks, guys. Well, thank you. Keith, so let's start off with your pick. You've chosen the new movie Inside Lewin Davis. It's a new movie from the Coen brothers. It stars Oscar Isaac, Carrie Mulligan, and John Goodman. And so, Keith, I've read and heard a little bit about this. Um, It seems to me maybe you could describe it as, oh, brother, where art thou, as applied to the folk scene. How horribly reductive is that? Not as reductive as you you might might fear, because there's some similarities. They both have, they're both music-driven films. They both have terrific soundtracks produced by T-Bone Burnett, who's uh, become, or if, if he wasn't always, has become an expert at like producing soundtracks around the sound of a certain time and place. And I think both are about um, moments in history where one one moment is transitioning into another. Here, it's the height of the, the folk boom in early 1960s New York in Greenwich Village, where there's there's uh, there's people with acoustic guitars in every coffee shop passing the hat, but. That moment also kind of ripening, ready, ready, ready to to end. He used to have a partner. What happened? Threw himself off the George Washington Bridge. Well, I don't blame him. I couldn't take it either. Having to play Jimmy Crack Corn every night. Oh, pardon me for saying so. That's pretty stupid, isn't it? George Washington Bridge. You throw yourself off the Brooklyn Bridge, traditionally. George Washington Bridge. Who does that? But it, tonally, they're very different. Where where Oh Brother, We're Out There is very, very comic, very, very antic, and and very um, almost cartoony at times. This is a very somber film. There's a lot of humor in it as well, but it's a, of a much darker variety. I guess one other similarity is is that. Um, there's sort of this in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. This this sort of continuing obsession with like what is authentic, what is real old timey music, and that question is very much at the fore here, where where Oscar Isaac plays a folk singer who is a, an expert interpreter of folk styles, and he's kind of surrounded by people who aren't bad people and aren't unartistic people, but are happy to use folk music as a chance to become pop stars or a chance to. Uh, as a chance to latch on to what's, what the going music at the moment is. Scott, your pick is a documentary called Narco Cultura. The director, Shaul Schwartz, joins a Juarez detective who investigates drug cartels. At the same time, there's footage of a singer in Los Angeles. He's singing ballads about those same drug cartels in a genre of music called Narco Corridos. Tell us a little bit more about this movie. I think you described it quite well. Um, you know, this has been a really great year for unconventional, you know, mold-breaking, impressionistic documentaries uh, like The Act of Killing and Leviathan. And, uh, and here's one where Schwartz, who's a w- war photographer, goes in and, and wants to get capture things a little bit more intimately. Uh, the focus on these two subjects is is pointed, of course. You know, I mean, it, 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 we have this musician in Los Angeles composing these narco corridos, which are, are ballads that sort of glorify the cartel lifestyle in much the same way as the worst of uh, gangster rap 
glorifies criminality. Uh, and he contrasts that with uh, with an investigator in Juarez, who is, which is at the epicenter of this drug war. And uh, and this guy is just dealing with bodies all day. <laughs> it's a sharp contrast, and it's not. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, conceptually it doesn't seem that subtle, but but the execution mm-hmm. of it is very particular and, and and very striking. Sounds really good. Scott Tobias recommends the documentary Narco Cultura, which is in limited release nationwide. Keith Phipps recommends the new Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis in theaters this week. Scott and Keith write for Pitchfork's film critic site The Dissolve, which you could find. I bet you would have guessed this, but it's at thedissolve.com. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. It's Bullseye. I'm Mike Peskin for Jesse Thorne. It's time for Cannonball. We talk to experts about classic albums or albums that should be considered classics and find out what makes them great. On this installment, rock critic Jim DeRogatis joins us. We're going to talk about the best rock album ever made, Pink Flag by Wire. Wire is an English band, and Pink Flag was their first album. It was released in 1977. Around that time, punk music dominated in Britain. The punk scene was of and for outcasts. Still, the guys in Wire didn't quite fit in. Wire was too arty for the punks and too punk for the artists. The members of Wire were art school students. They were serious artists. They played in different media, sculpting and painting and performance art. People who loved ideas above everything else. And I think it was almost as a lark that Wire began to make music, but they came to love it very quickly. Pink Flag kicks off with a song called Reuters. And it's about a correspondent in a war zone that is not named, who is fighting to stay alive, and surrounding him are looting, murders, and rape. It's a truly horrifying song. And man, what a way to say hello and open your album and open your career. starts and it only gets more intense from there they said the goal for their first album was uh, caulking a snoot at the history of rock and roll so they were going to strip things down to their bare essence and give you back the regurgitated history of rock and roll all in this package but in the end you have this album of 21 songs that is in essence a punk rock suite From song to song to song, the suite shifts moods uh, very dramatically. I mean, Field Day for the Sundays is all of 28 seconds long. It's a typical pop star or movie star lament. I want to be a Field Day for the Sundays so they can F up my life. You know, a picture of me with a nude on page three. You know, I mean, it's a very English kind of thing, making fun of the English tabloids. But to go from the correspondent in the foxhole to that, to the third song, Three Girl Rumber, think think of a number divided by two, something is nothing, nothing is nothing. You know, that's the beat poet in Graham Lewis, the bassist who wrote all the lyrics, although Colin Newman sang them. There was always an emotional distance in Wire. Sometimes the story is linear, like Reuters, uh, the war correspondent, and sometimes it's it's a jumble and a mystery. What is Three Girl Rumba about? I, well, it could be a, about Graham, who was always a randy and lascivious fellow, juggling three girlfriends at once, or it could be about absolutely nothing. The impossible. They hated anything that was uh, bluesy or swung. That was a dirty word for them, right? You know, they wanted insistent, 
pounding. No solos. Oh my god, the idea of a solo in a wire song was so verboten. Guitar chords? Any old idiot can play guitar. You know, Eric Clapton plays guitar chords. Who needs leads when you have songs this great? You know, I mean, they were never going to do a walking blues riff because none of them could play it, and and they would think that it was too cliched anyway. Unless it was like Lowdown, which is kind of a blues song, but it's so twisted and weird that it doesn't really work as a blues song. Another cigarette, another day. From A to B Again avoiding CDNA Disease Where you play the blues I think that the most inspiring thing about Wire is that it's a band that shows that you need almost no talent at all if you have ideas. You know, and they had a million ideas and very little talent, and look at how much they created. Wire was one very strong spice that some chefs appreciated, but that wasn't for the masses. It wasn't really until Wire went on hiatus for seven or eight years, 1980 to 1987, that people began to realize how how influential uh, and forward-looking and groundbreaking those albums were, Pink Floyd especially. You know, they've been covered by Sonic Youth and, and Husker Du and Mission of Burma and Elastica made an entire career in the 90s out of one Wire song. And there's 21 of them that are that good on Pink Flag. Right now is probably a good time to break in and say that Jim DeRogatis played drums in a Wire cover band, which is very specific. So yeah, Pink Flag means a lot to me in my life. I could still sit down and play every song and remember every lyric. In fact, when Wire reunited in 1987, they insisted on playing only their new material. They hate nothing more than living in the past. They were always moving forward. If you're not moving forward like a shark through the water, you're dead. But here's the thing. They hired Jim's band to open for him, and Jim's band got to play all the old stuff. We were the ultimate postmodern prank for this band. Jim named the cover band after a song that's on Pink Flag, Ex-Lion Tamer. I named the band Ex-Lion Tamers because I love the song Ex-Lion Tamer the best. There's great danger, danger for the To me, it's about somebody who used to do something interesting or dangerous or adrenaline-inducing, the lion tamer, who is now retired and has given up living and is not living in the moment, just sitting and glued to your TV set, which I think Wire would say is the worst fate imaginable. You know, better to be dead than to be an ex-lion tamer. Be here now. Live in the moment. Make something crazy happen. I don't care what it is, but if you're doing something here now, then that's, that's art. Jim DeRogatis talking about what he calls the greatest rock album of all time, Pink Flag by Wire. You can catch Jim Weekly on his public radio program, Sound Opinions. You can find that at soundopinions.org. He also blogs regularly at wbez.org. After a break, Jesse Thorne will talk to Lisa Kudrow. I'm Mike Pesca, and this is Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Justin, what are you doing? Uh, strapping a uh, chicken in my arm. Heard there's some uh, plague out west, so I just wanted to you know, kind of get out ahead of it. 
Justin, if you'd ever listened to our medical history podcast, Sawbones, where we talk about everything from trepanation to bloodletting, you would know that that is a ridiculous idea and it will never work. Sawbones? I haven't caught it. Sawbones? Yes, it's every Friday on the Maximum Fun Network and we record it together. A doctor or something? Yes! It's Bullseye. I'm Mike Peskin for Jesse Thorne. For 10 years, Lisa Kudrow played Phoebe on Friends. Phoebe was a bit dopey, but very sweet. She might have been the show's most beloved character. Since Friends, Kudrow has balanced that sweetness with some darker themes. Her Emmy-nominated lead role in The Comeback was as an actress who was more or less defined by her narcissism. In the current series, Web Therapy, she plays a therapist who conducts her sessions online. She's also kind of a terrible person and very bad therapist. She's got little patience for other people. Here she is in the third season of the show, having the tables turned on her by her husband's sex therapist. In fact, her husband's straightening out therapist, played by Meryl Streep. Can I ask you a question? Yes, of course. I'm here to help. When's the last time you really laughed, like a a real belly laugh that came from down deep inside you that you couldn't stop? When's the last time? Don't tell me. Just hold on to your answer. In the last year, in the last five years. I've never been out of control, you know, where I've wet myself. No, I don't think I've ever done anything so awkward and embarrassing, no. When's the last time that you really let yourself cry like a little girl in the last year? You know, I wasn't the type of little girl who cried, so... I have to say that uh, I've been a pretty emotionally consistent and stable person my whole entire life. I'm just, I'm lucky that way. I don't want you to answer me, really. Oh. I just want you to hold the answers in your heart. Okay. And find out what they tell you. Done. Jesse Thorne talked to Lisa Kudrow last year. Lisa Kudrow, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I was yeah. excited to read uh, that you come from a family of neurologists. Uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, I, I'm sure that is exciting. Well, it's exciting for me because <laughs> I've relied on neurologists for much of my life because I I am a I get migraines. Uh-huh. And um, your father, I know, was a headache specialist. Yeah. Um, you actually work with him a little bit. Did you have anybody in, in your family who got migraine? Um, I think we all did. And I know that's what made my father decide to, you know, exclusively research and treat headache. Um, you you grew up in Encino, California, here, not far from here. And well, Tarzana, technically. Tarzana. Yeah, right um, next door. Um, <laughs> and you uh, and you went to college at Vassar, and were not an acting student there. You were not an acting major there. No. Um, and I got the impression that maybe part of what part of what led you into um, doing science in school, which is what you did, mm-hmm. um, was that you that you wanted to do something that was, you know, I don't know, serious. Mm-hmm. That you wanted to do something that felt like it was not a frivolous thing. It felt important. Uh-huh. I mean, it felt like knowledge worth having. Right. You know? And I mean I saw my father doing it and it just looked it looked really thrilling to me. And then the information, you know, when I was in high school and first took sort of a real biology class, oh, I, I, I mean I was hooked. I was really hooked. I thought it was the most fascinating thing. But was it competing at the same time with um with a latent interest to either be funny or be an actress? <laughs> no, not at all. But not at all. Not even a little bit. No. Really? The answer I, to that is no. I want to play this clip from uh, the pilot of Friends, which I just watched yesterday. And uh, this is this is sort of your big scene, your big character establishment scene. That's so, the monologue. Yeah. So everyone that was the audition piece. Oh wow! So mm-hmm. everyone everyone is sitting around the kitchen table in this scene, uh, consoling Jennifer Aniston, who's just showed up and has is super upset because she left her fiance at the altar. 
Um, and then you bust out with this. Give her a break. It's hard being on your own for the first time. Thank you. You're welcome. I remember when I first came to this city. I was 14. My mom had just killed herself, and my stepdad was back in prison. And I got here, and I didn't know anybody. And I ended up living with this albino guy who was, like, cleaning windshields outside Port Authority. And then he killed himself. <laughs> and then I found aromatherapy. So believe me, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> the word you're looking for is... Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is, that is an amazing scene. It is such a terrifying string of specifics. Mm-hmm. And your, as I was reading, um, I, I went on Wikipedia and read the character description of Phoebe from Friends. And it basically was, you know, there's parts where, sh- where they describe all our relationships with the other characters. But the intro, two or three paragraphs, the, the nut of this thing was just a list of nightmares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just horrible, 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 <laughs> horrible, 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 horrible things. All one after the other. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the, um, you know, the juice of this character was retaining retaining that lightness in the face of mm-hmm. this string of horrible nightmares. Right. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. Very There's... optimistic. Or, you know, incomplete denial. But uh-huh. that's a good coping mechanism sometimes. It's funny because it strikes me as exactly the opposite of someone who uh, who at at 10 has the mentality of a 30-year-old. Um, I kept saying, are you sure <laughs> that I should play this part? I have no – I mean I have no point of reference. I, I mean I did find people, you know, that I had known that could help me along. I just mean inside my head. Like, oh, I had a friend in college who was kicked out and her parents wouldn't pay for her to go. And she had to work in a nursing home and clean up after old people and all this stuff. And she was no idiot. But she would also be very light about, oh, (laughs) the other day Martha did the funniest thing. And it's this horrible, (laughs) sad story about this woman with dementia who couldn't do something and she had to help. And this young girl has to clean up after all these old people. That was her job. And so I definitely drew on this girl. I thought that is just the, the definition of resilience to me, you know, like not... There's no state of victimhood for Phoebe or this, you know, this friend of mine. And I think that's what's really admirable. So I did have a lot of admiration for Phoebe, even if she didn't have any information. It's Bullseye. I'm Mike Peskin for Jesse Thorne. You're hearing Jesse's interview with the actress Lisa Kudrow. She won an Emmy for her role as Phoebe on the long-running sitcom Friends. She's also starred in movies like Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion and Analyze This. She co-created and stars in the improvised comedy web series Web Therapy, which has been adapted for TV on Showtime. Was it strange to... I mean, one of the things about being on a sitcom is, especially the kind of sitcom that you were on... Um, you know, where a multi-camera sitcom is is shot in in a lot of ways like a play. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's more linear than a single camera show. Mm-hmm. Um, so you basically come in once a week. You can went in once a week for ten years, seven months out of the year or whatever, and lived in that. I have to imagine that you know, I, it must it must affect you. To be in that for so long. Yeah. I imagine it did. <laughs> Do you have any perspective on how it did? <laughs> no, I I don't. I don't think I do. I I, I love structure. So mm-hmm. this was perfect. I mean, of course, yeah, it's perfect for any actor who'd want a steady job with a huge paycheck. Yes, right. of course. <laughs> duh. You know, <laughs> that's my big insight. It was perfect. Um I think, but what was unique is that the six of us weren't tired of it. You know, we really had fun together. One thing I learned is, you know, because I was a good student, mm-hmm. um, when we would rehearse and the director says Jimmy Burroughs is trying to get our attention to move on to the next scene or, you know, let's try it this way. And the actors are sort of like talking or playing with each other. They were playing with each other like messing around. And um, it was horseplay in my head. And you were not listening to the boss. We're not listening to the dad, the boss, the teacher, you know, like you guys, we got to 
And James Burroughs is the king of dads, king of comedy dads. He is, but he... The legendary director of every great television sitcom ever. Well, yes. Okay, yes. That is who Jimmy Burroughs is. (laughs) Right. That's right. Directed and executive producer of Cheers. You know, before that, Taxi. But what he understood and the other actors understood that I was clueless about was, no, no, you have to... There has to be horseplay because you have to keep it light. This is not serious. This is not a classroom. And, you know, you're not learning surgery. And you have to keep it light and playful. You have got to be playing. And whenever I would be a guest star on a show and I would see the actors, I'm like, well, these were the people who didn't do well in school. Because look at them. Look at all this horseplay. No one's paying attention. We need to move along. And it took me until Friends and maybe into the second season when it finally clicked for me. No, no, they all know what they're doing. They're right. You have to keep it light and fun. And so I finally got with the program. Since Friends ended, you're in sort of a weird netherworld because you could just stop making things Mm -hmm. if you wanted. Right, if money were the driving force. Yeah. Right. But but you still live in this world where you have to, at least to some extent, get somebody to sign off on something before you can get it. Yeah, except for a web series. Right. So is that how you ended up in web series? You're just like, you know what? Maybe I'm just going to make a thing that I like. Yeah, it ultimately became that. I mean, we just had this idea um, that was absurd. You know, people are doing a lot of stuff on the Internet. And wouldn't it be funny because it's absurd if they, you know, offered someone offered therapy, but only three minute sessions. And um, and the three minutes was, let's see, because of like web series, a webisode, people don't like to watch things for longer than, let's say, like a three-minute sketch. So, okay, so how do we justify that it's three minutes? Because the therapist will only offer three-minute sessions. She thinks 50-minute sessions are boring. Cut to the chase. Out of the whole 50 minutes, I think three minutes of it were only really helpful. So let's just have those in the sessions I'm going to do. Like none of it makes sense. It's just really – that's a horrible idea. And then it's the internet, so you don't know. I mean, anyone can just say, oh, no, I'm a specialist in this <laughs> because I said it. I want to play a conversation uh, from the show. It's between you and Lily Tomlin, who plays your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just another really lovely illustration of your your penchants for uh, self-flagellation <laughs> in your work. Remember when you were a little child and you used to try to climb? Well, you were never little, really. You were always too pudgy. But you would try to clamber up onto my lap and cuddle. And um, I know I should have cuddled you, and I blame myself for not cuddling. Well, but it's not really your fault if you weren't appealing. And you were always eating something, you know, sticky and gooey. And I just wish that I had those days back. I would, I would so treasure them. Oh. Well, that's a that's a darling thought. I just want to sweep away this dysfunctional debris that exists between us. That's how I feel. And I think little children are sticky and gooey and I, I, But I do, I do think that children, even little <laughs> children, realize when their mothers are rejecting them. Do you? Well, I never felt that way. It's odd. That's never how I felt. I, I always know, felt like you you're, were... You're not perceptive, the... and you never have been. <laughs> <laughs> and that's her mother. We had to explain how Fiona became Fiona. But, I mean, I think a lot of people who were in your position would do what they could to make characters who are heroes. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it's right. fun to it's fun to get to be the hero. But I wonder if... I don't think it's so fun. I Okay. <laughs> I think it's more fun to be the, you know, hilariously damaged. That person who thinks, that, you know, they're pulling it off. You know, no one will be able to see how self-serving I am, even though she's not doing much to mask it. I feel like if I was, and, you know, this is this may be just me, but I feel like if I was on Friends for 10 years and it was my job to be one of six people who are America's favorite people, you know, like they're just what no matter what they did and they did negative things but their the goal one of the premises of that show is you want to be friends with these people mm-hmm. that there would be a part of me that was just like i just want to make from now on all the things i make are people's enemies <laughs> <laughs> i know it looks like that's what i've done huh <laughs> it looks like that's what i've done 
Jesse Thorne speaking with actress Lisa Kudrow last year. Her series Web Therapy is now in its fourth season online. And now the outshot, a bit of cultural ephemera or a piece of arts floatsum, as recommended by the host of this program to the listeners, from me to you, the outshot. That's Sing Sing Sing, the Benny Goodman song. I always thought it would make a great theme song for a show that's pronounced, yet not bombastic, with a lot of energy and bounce, but that's grounded in craft. And here's a snippet of music that accompanies every airing of the ESPN program, Olbermann. That actually isn't Sing Sing Sing, but that is Keith Oberman's new ESPN show, and it does have some of the percussive qualities that I mentioned. Oberman's a little like Gene Krupa, the drummer most associated with that Sing 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 riff. He's a virtuoso. I've had people in the TV business tell me Oberman's skills are unparalleled, but he also has demons. Krupa's were Hooch and Mary Jane. Come on, he was a pre-bebop drummer. Oberman's demons are ego and temperament. Come on, he's a 24-hour news star. But in this forum and on this show, we appreciate Olbermann's many, many gifts. Great writer, great praiser of the praiseworthy and zinger of the zingworthy. His story selection and takes remind us that he watches sports like a rational fanatic with equal parts passion, amusement, bemusement, and angst. Olbermann's use of the acerbic aside or the withering glance is unparalleled and his catchphrases are organic and inclusive, not showy and exclusive. Anthony Chaffee. Hello. Oh, Oberman's still cranky. At times, that is directed at the show itself. I've noticed that there are three occasions during every show where the person named Olbermann distances himself from something that the show named Olbermann seems to be asserting. Up at the top of the show, there's a semi-ironic acknowledgement of the program's title vis-a-vis the person telling you the title. Olbermann is next. By the way, I'm Olbermann. Then he gives you the highlights or the Keith lights. Silly name. Keith acknowledges that it's a silly name, but he still mentions the name silliness and all. Person's coming up first. What you need to see and what I need to describe today's highlights. There, Keith seems to be saying to an internal audience, "See, I'm acquiescing to management. I may think it's dumb, but I'm still acquiescing. I say the word Keith lights. I can work with others." Then there's this branded segment, which he brought with him from his MSNBC days. First, the miscreants, losers, and riffraff, the unwashed and the unloved. Don't take it completely seriously. I don't mean it completely literally. We just call them tonight's worst persons in the sports world. LeBron to the San Francisco Giants. Who turned the extended disclaimer he gives highlights, or maybe Keith lights, no, highlights a vexatious Keith Undrum. Worst person in the world is a valuable brand that would be foolish to jettison. And at times when the worst person in the world is indeed a malefactor, the disclaimer is apt. For instance, here's one I could think of. He told a story about a principal and a superintendent of a high school who wouldn't let the student newspaper not use the nickname Redskins. That's right. They decreed that their journalists must use Redskins in their copy after the student journalists decided it was a bad idea. So maybe that superintendent, that principal, wasn't the worst person in the world, but they were no good. But there are other times when the worst person in the world is like a high school team that picked up a block kick and raced for a touchdown, which hardly fits the rubric. Quibbles aside, And by the way, quibbles and asides are two of the best things about the show. I can put my finger on why I like this show so much more than Oberman's previous political incarnations. I was reading a review of a book about Walter Baggett, the 19th century writer and thinker in the Wall Street Journal. There was a phrase, Baggett's writings glow not with zeal, but with zest. And in Oberman's political shows, there was a zealousness, definition marked by fervent partisanship. A political host banging the same shibboleths may be right, he may be trenchant, but it gets wearying. Fun turns to obligation with a daily diatribe against those who abuse positions of power. But when the scorn is directed at those who are out of position on the power play, that's zesty. Rooting against a team is fun in sports. It's petty with political parties. Bemoaning a greedy league or greedy owners, that's fun in sports. It's depressing in politics. Tweaking a stiflingly on-message sports network is fun, 
chronicling the deceptions of a ceaselessly in-the-bag quote-unquote news network, that becomes predictable. Also, in the world of sports, when the darts miss or are even misdirected, hey, it's just darts. Quaff another pint and enjoy the most compelling thing about Olbermann. That's Olbermann. I've done all the damage I can do here in New York. Keith Olbermann, ESPN. Good night and good luck. And that's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Brian Bolt. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye theme music is provided by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. If you have thoughts about the show, don't shoot the messenger. Email jesse at jesse at maximumfun.org. I email Jesse there and he gets back to me. It's his real email address. Hey, since I'm doing credits, why not plug my podcast? We talk about sports every week with Slate. It's called Hang Up and Listen. You can find it on all the places you find podcasts. So thanks very much for listening. And if you have been listening on the podcast version of this show, due to the time-shifting nature of that medium, thank you and have a pleasant yesterday or possibly next Thursday. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.